In recent years, there's been an explosion of so-called lab-developed tests, which are designed, manufactured, and used in the same facility and have been exempt from FDA oversight. In September, the FDA proposed to remove this loophole. In particular, the agency mentioned LDTs, false positive prenatal diagnoses of rare genetic disorders that, instead of delivering the peace of mind proposed, have thrown several expecting parents into a panic and even resulted in the abortion of a healthy fetus. Also cited were problems with LDTs in other contexts, such as inaccurate genetic testing that has led to ineffective or harmful cancer treatments. Soon the FDA will decide whether to withdraw, revise, or finalize the rule. However, by considering the problem solved, as long as LDTs and non-LDTs are treated similarly, the FDA proposal obscures a fundamental mathematical limitation to testing, which too many patients and doctors are unaware of. Practically all tests, not just LDTs, carry the risk of false positives which can render the results effectively useless when the condition is rare enough. For such conditions, many tests should only be used when additional risk factors or symptoms are present. That was Manil Suri, a mathematics professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of The Big Bang of Numbers, and Daniel Morgan, a physician and professor of epidemiology, public health, and infectious diseases at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. They were reading from their recent first opinion essay on the mathematical limits of diagnostic tests. After a quick break, I'll bring you a conversation about diagnostic tests, false positives, and how to communicate uncertainty to patients and physicians. Right now, millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, know your enrollment dates. Employer plans typically select a time period in the fall for employees to choose their coverage. Enrollment for Medicare eligible participants runs from October 15th through December 7th. Second, Take time to understand the costs of each plan by comparing how much you pay each month, as well as deductibles, copays, and prescription drug coverage. For more tips, visit uhcopenenrollment.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Manil and Daniel. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be speaking with you. So, Manil, you're a mathematician. Daniel, you're a physician and professor of medicine. You know, it's not a combo we see all that often on STAT, I think. Um, so have you two worked together before? And if not, how did you connect on this issue? This happened like four or five years ago that I was using a piece that Dan wrote for the Washington Post on uh, false negatives and so on. And uh, I was using it in this class that I teach, uh, which is basically a math class for non-mathematicians. And one of the students uh, said, hey, I know that person. He's a neighbor of mine. 
uh, and that was Dan Dan Morgan. Uh, and then uh, I guess uh, Dan got in touch with me many years later and uh, said, maybe we should do something together to um, spread the word about uh, the math behind false positives. I love that. I mean, it's a great example of a kind of this, this Smaltimore thing in, in Baltimore. Um, yeah, as a woman who lived three doors down from me who one day mentioned Manil and uh, I'd always had it in my mind that I should reach out to him. And uh, when I found the time, um, reached out and talked about some of his work and my work and uh, thought this would be a fun project to come together on. Well, we love a good cross-disciplinary collaboration. So yes, more of that, please. Um, so in your recent article, you write that essentially all tests have a risk of false positive. And the more rare the disease, the more likely a false positive might be. You know, Basically, you say it's a mathematical limit for diagnostic tests. So can you please explain that in a way that someone like me who hasn't taken a math course in 20 years can understand? I think everything boils down to math in some way or the other. And not just math, but really probabilities. That's that's what our world is like. And so uh, when you do a, a test, as Dan will probably explain, uh, you can't be 100% sure that it'll give you a correct answer. And um, a certain percentage of the tests that you do, they will come out positive even though the person being tested doesn't have that condition. Now, that that number might just be like 1%, which sounds pretty good, right? 1% of tests are going to come out positive. So that means 99% uh, you expect would be accurate. But unfortunately, there's something else that goes into the calculation and that is how rare the condition is that you're teach that you're uh, researching, that you're testing. Uh, if it's a condition that is uh, quite common, then uh, the one percent is pretty insignificant and doesn't make any difference. But if the condition itself is so uncommon that it's you know instead of one percent, it's like one in twenty thousand, which is point zero zero five percent, then what you find is that uh, essentially. There are very few people who have that condition, really, but still 1% will still test positive. And uh, the best way to think of it is uh, a couple of conditions that are that just occur one in 20,000. So if you tested 20,000 people, only one person would actually have that condition. But remember, if you have a 1% false positive rate, then out of 20,000, 200 people that is 1%, will test positive. And so out of that 200 people, only one person will actually have the disease. So that means if you get a positive test, then what does that mean? It means that only one out of 200 times will you really have that disease. And so it's essentially what we are saying is uh, this testing is essentially worthless in many cases when you have these you know, weird false positive and um, the number of uh, and and the uh, the prevalence of the disease. And you know what sort of diseases are we talking about here, Dan? Maybe as the physician, you can tell us a bit about that. Sure. I mean, I think there's there's lots of diseases. Um, the ones that we focused on for this piece, just because the numbers are very available, are ones that I don't end up seeing because I'm an adult doctor. But uh, you know some of these uh, inborn uh, you know uh, conditions that uh, occur um, often in utero, and with the idea being you can detect them and uh, potentially abort the fetus if uh, um, that was not the desired outcome of the pregnancy. 
um, you know, which everybody's used to the idea of doing that with Down syndrome, um, which is much more common than these other conditions. But these conditions, um, the one I learned about in medical school is called Prader-Willi. I've never seen it in real life because um, it's one in 20,000 people. So it's uh, not not many who uh, are out there. Um, and then there's some, you know, other lots of different ones that are sort of combination of names like uh, Wolf-Hirschhorn disease is another. And these are often ones that cause fairly significant developmental delays, maybe seizures and other um, sort of, you know, malformation of the facies, et cetera. So um, the biggest part is that they are quite rare and that uh, in the setting of trying to test during pregnancy, the result could change what you do with them. Um, versus if you were testing for a kid who, you know, in a very young age started to have problems that were characteristics of these diseases, well, they would be much more likely to have them because uh, that probability wouldn't just be the average person. It would be the, the, you know, the person who has these symptoms, which often are pretty characteristic. So in that case, those tests are wonderful. But for screening in women who are just the average pregnant woman, um, the risk is exceedingly low and the tests are, you know, have this problem that is is hard to address. Yeah, I'm so I'm currently pregnant. I'm a, a slightly older pregnant lady. So thank you. Uh, so I've had a whole bunch of tests done. Um, and, you know, I certainly see on the message boards, right, that women and you know people who are pregnant don't totally understand how to think about these tests, right? Because the the NIPT, the non-invasive prenatal test, um, generally doesn't say you do or do not have something. It gives you a risk factor, rather, um, you know, says you are at high or low risk for having something. Um, how do you you recommend sort of communicating with patients about risk, about you know the one percent rate when all of this is like kind of complicated? I mean, it's it's a great question, and and uh, a lot of my experience uh, about actually this conversation has been, you know, as a parent um, or an, an expectant parent with with my wife and thinking about these things. And I think my wife loved the fact that she was like a, a advanced maternal age, you know, and so uh, recommended. I, I'm geriatric pregnancy. It's just terrible. It's just me. Yeah, yeah. No, my my old my youngest. I think uh, my wife was 43, so she she experienced the whole thing. Um, and uh, I, I think actually one group that does better than most, like that does better than doctors are um, genetic counselors. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's this whole profession oriented around kind of limited situations that they get involved in and recommend people to test or not. And, um, and they talk to you about, they talk to patients about risk, which is, is interesting is the most accurate way to talk about what a test means, even though, um, us doctors often don't do that. You know, it's sort of like, well, we could test you for a heart attack. And if it's positive, you know, it's likely, likely you have it. And sometimes we may be simplifying that for the patient's, um, you know, uh, ease of understanding when they're in a difficult situation. But I think often we're doing the same thing for ourselves. And um, in some studies we've done of doctors, you know, when you, when you actually try to put them on the spot and say like, hey, in this simple scenario, how likely is someone to have disease and how much does a test change that result? we don't do very well. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually, so we've recently started accepting letters to the editor at First Opinion, which we now publish on Saturdays. We received a great letter to the editor about your piece from a medical student who said that just a month ago, um, they believe they would have misunderstood a 1% false positive rate in exactly the way that you describe uh, in the piece. Um, and only very recently had they sort of 
had the education to help them understand what a 1% false positive rate actually means. Um, is statistic education for doctors just not very good? Do, is there, are you learning so much um, that, you know, sometimes you learn it and then forget it as soon as you're in practice? So what's the status of stats education for would-be doctors? I mean, uh, this one, I guess I, I'm pretty well suited to talk about because I'm involved in our education at the University of Maryland, and it's pretty typical for, for what medical students get. And uh, medical students, despite spending a lot of time in school, you're always fighting for their time. There's, you know, you got to fight with a cardiovascular system or, you know, ocular system to to get, you know, the biostats portion in. And And I think a lot of what we've taught for biostats has been a more research-oriented biostats, like we teach them the different research study designs and how to figure out what a p-value means and analyze a trial type thing, which uh, I do that for a living. So, you know, I, I do think it's worthwhile, but it's kind of remarkable to me that we don't teach them practical stats. I mean, I feel like almost this shouldn't really be called statistics so much. It's just like kind of like rational thinking or probability or, um, and it, and we shouldn't teach it as much about math, maybe, as we should about like how to get the concepts right in a big way. Like you don't need to know the difference between one and two percent false positive rate necessarily. You just need to know like, OK, that's pretty low. But in these situations, it's going to be a problem. And then you can always figure out, you know, a calculator or something to to tell you exactly what it means. But um I think it's never been taken on as like a target for medical education. We We teach people. Um, you know, some sayings like uh, when you hear hoofbeats, think zebras, not horses, which is t saying like, you know, look for common things, not uncommon things. But we don't really give them the background and probability to understand why that is. And uh, there's a number of studies that show just doctors aren't very good at understanding issues of probability, even if maybe in real life occasionally, you know, I hope they're better at that. I kind of uh, fell into this kind of whirlpool myself just recently, uh, earlier this year, where uh, I went for uh, a routine uh, electrocardiogram as part of my testing. And the doctor came in and said, well, according to my machine, you're uh, currently having a heart attack. Oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> it was just like the most bizarre thing. And then he went out and I was just left there for like five, 10 minutes, uh, thinking what's going on. And apparently it was something called uh, the Brugada syndrome, which uh, had shown up in my EKG. Um, and uh, if you look at the literature, which I did later on, uh, it said uh, simply what Dan was just saying, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, think uh, horses, not zebras, uh, because it said that uh, this the first thing to check is whether the electrodes have been put properly. Um, and uh, apparently that was, I'm assuming, an issue. But of course, that sent me into this, you know, he referred me to somebody and then that person wanted to do a whole bunch of other tests on me, which uh, were perhaps not indicated. Uh, for example, a stress EKG, which again, from Dan's work, I noticed in one of the tables that he has, uh, if you get a a positive result in a stress EKG uh, and you don't have other symptoms, which Brugada syndrome is not really, uh, you know, not really related to that, then the chance that the positive result is a true positive is only three to eleven percent. So um, once again, you know, the 
there's there's all these my 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 family doctor was saying no you have to get this done you have to get that done i finally found a cardiologist who said look you know this is what happened and you don't need to get this done and i still haven't had that stress ekg uh so i think i think that's the kind of uh ability to be able to discuss it with doctors that i try to impress on my students and um it's you know that suspicion that uh way of thinking that if they can get that correct, then they don't need the exact mathematical formulas behind it, but just the gist of what's happening. Oh, that's a great point. I'm glad to hear that you're okay. Uh, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that it, it feels like even if both physicians and patients understand that a test might lead to a false positive, there's the sense that, well, I'd rather know than not know. Um, can you talk, you know, maybe a little bit about, you know, aside from the risk of a prenatal test falsely leading someone to abort a wanted pregnancy, you know, for adults or for children who are already here, what are some of the risks of false positives in these tests? Yeah, I mean, I could throw out a few and, and certainly, you know, it, it varies a lot by the situation. And, um, you know, the, the the place where it's sort of like you often have time to think about it a little bit more is like screening tests, which uh, I mean, I think one of the big differences to to note that, you know, Manil's case brings up too is if you don't have symptoms, you're probably low risk for it. You know, like it means like you're pretty close to the general population, most likely. And and that's when tests often don't work very well, because uh, just by definition, you don't have anything that makes you more likely to have it versus like if you're in the emergency room sick with something, you know, it makes you a lot more likely to have some kind of disease. A really common one is uh, the test we do to detect a urinary tract infection, which is a urine culture. It seems like a very simple test. It detects bacteria. And if there's a certain amount, then we say it's positive. Um, we used to consider all of those uh, an infection and give people antibiotics, but now we know that a lot of people, especially if they're older patients or if they're in a nursing home, they will have the positive test without any symptoms and they don't benefit from antibiotics. But we also know that it's one of the leading causes of unnecessary antibiotics in nursing homes and in the hospital are people who get this test and then are treated unnecessarily um, for this essentially what is a, a false positive result. And uh, it's not that the test is wrong, but it's just that it's being done on the wrong patients and that leads us to have the wrong action. Um, the more serious side of things, I've, I've seen patients who had things like being tested for a blood clot with some tests that are relatively inaccurate. They change the probability, but again, you shouldn't use them on patients who aren't likely to have one. And uh, you know, for that condition, we give people blood thinners, which can be very serious. And I've seen people have you know bad outcomes in relation to the treatment we gave them for the test result that you know ultimately, you know, was probably a false positive. So, you know, to to bring it back to the FDA and to the LDTs that we talked about at the beginning, you know, what is it that you would like to see the FDA and other regulators do? to sort of combat this issue of false positives at a time when, as you say, the number of tests are just skyrocketing. Great. Well, maybe I'll take a first stab at this, knowing that uh, there's, there's probably a number of things. And this is not specific to the LDTs themselves, but uh, just really any diagnostic test. So I think trying to, to, to start really regulating diagnostic tests in a way where you're trying to give information to clinicians and patients to where they can interpret them better 
would be great. And the, the FDA may do this a little bit here and there, but the numbers that they publish are often impossible to find or they're buried in a document and they may not be presented in a way that's sort of useful. Um, there are people who have created things. I have a website that has some, some calculators where you can you know, essentially say, well, what's my risk? And then what would a positive test or a negative test mean? It takes a little bit of work to get those numbers, um, but the FDA would be what you know an ideal group to be able to actually say, well, this is the standard number that we're working from, or this is the standard population, and to publish those numbers. And I, you know, what would be a great dream would be like if they published it in a way that people could easily understand them with like an interactive calculator or something. Do you want to share the uh, URL for your website where people can play around with your calculators? Sure. I mean, uh, so we we created our website and it's testingwisely.com. So it's all one word, T-E-S-T-I-N-G-W-I-S-E-L-Y.com. Excellent. Thanks. Yes. I recommend, um, you know, just messing around. It's really sort of enlightening to to visit and, and to, to use the interactives you've created. Manil, from the math side, what is it that you might want to see around sort of communication around these issues? I think uh, from the math side, it's really... Uh, Something that is not necessarily uh, what the FDA can do. Uh, what Dan said is certainly, you know, that'll be great. Uh, but beyond that, I think people need to start trusting the math more than the tests in some sense. Um, if there's a condition that is uh, occurring in one in 20,000 people, then uh doing a test to try and uh, eliminate that possibility that you have the condition, which would only be like 0.005%. So whether you do anything or not, 99.995% of the time, you will be free of that condition. Uh, trying to make it 100% by doing tests just entangles you in all sorts of possible problems. Uh, and so it's really trusting the math and saying, okay, I can live with this. And uh, those are great odds, better than you're going to get anywhere else in life, probably. So uh, it's a question of whether you really want to do these tests or not. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you're both avid followers of Kim Kardashian, but over the summer, she um, was pitching these MRI full body scans, as were some other Instagram influencers. Um would either of you ever get a full body scan just to see what's going on? Or is your understanding of math such that you would not be, do not think it would be helpful to you? Uh, Dan, I'll start with you. Okay. Well, I was thinking, I think Manil was the one who follows Kim Kardashian more closely and uh, brought this <laughs> to my attention. But uh, um, uh, no would be the answer. I mean, these kind of executive physicals um, type thing that, you know, have always been kind of the rage among people with resources to, you know, get a full body scan and MRI or CT. And, you know, the idea that technology always is helpful and more information is always better has been clearly disproven because uh, we know that inside the body, it's kind of just like if you know people's skin, like as you age, there's like different irregularities that look a little funny, but that don't mean anything. And uh, inside the body, there's often like, you know, small tumors or little bumps or things that look concerning, but are ultimately essentially false positives. But once you know they're there, that often leads to things like biopsies or surgeries just to get the information to know what they mean. You know, and there's people who've died from that alone. And uh, so it's it's very clear you don't really want to know how things look inside unless there's a problem to to guide that. And that's been the problem with a lot of things like lung cancer screening, 
um, that makes it, you know, marginally beneficial in people who are really high risk of, of lung cancer and have no benefit, of course, in anyone who is of normal risk for lung cancer. And that's just the, the chest portion of that exam. So yeah, you don't want to start looking unless there's a, a problem that you're looking for. Yeah, and uh, we did talk about the Kim Kardashian uh, bit because we were wondering if we could somehow put that into this article as well. Uh, but but this question about personally subscribing to such tests, uh, there is one test that uh, many people my age uh, are confronted with, and that's the PSA test for prostate cancer. And uh, that's something that I don't take. I mean, I just said I do not want it. And I doctor was uh, actually the urologist was very upset that I didn't but uh, I said no uh, again because of uh, the statistics I look at the statistics and I, I go with those are there any other sort of health trends going on that uh, you think are just sort of mathematically silly um, if I can put it in a technical sense I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that, that one thing that, that mathematics would help out with, not just about testing, but also about like the, the benefits of treatment that, you know, are essentially you'd want to know sort of the absolute chance of benefit is, is again, as, as we start uh, treating people more aggressively with milder conditions or like preconditions, like prediabetes or prehypertension, the benefits start getting smaller and smaller, whereas the harms often of taking a medication are are the same because it's just a, a side effect of the medication. So I, I think that as we try to treat, you know, the the worried well um, with these very marginally effective um, treatments, I think that those generally where we see problems and the people who are, you know, marginalized and actually aren't getting healthcare you know, are the ones who come in with bad disease and are the ones that we should have been treating earlier. So I, I think trying to focus on people who are sick and who have very real conditions is where healthcare gets the most benefit. And the worried well with resources often kind of get themselves into problems of, of doing too much uh, when it wouldn't help them. And uh, I'll point out something else that's related to this, and that is that um, a lot of these things like prediabetes and so on, uh, they are the treatment for them uh, sort of looks at the probabilities and the percentages of the population as a whole. And you'll often get these statements like, hey, if we treat so many people, we will avoid these many deaths over the long run. And all that is fine. But when it comes to a per person, you know, one person and uh, what the best choice is for that person as a patient, rather than for a society in large, then those numbers kind of break down and it's, it, it becomes very unclear whether uh, you know, any of that will apply to you. Uh, so so that's, that's one thing that's always a, a problem with probabilities. Do you look at it in terms of society as a whole or do you look at it from the point of view of the patient? Yeah, and I would just uh, second that um, before we move past. Like, I think that's really a key part, even as a professor of epidemiology and public health, which, you know, my people tend to try and focus on the population level. I, I do think as a doctor and as a patient, you really got to think about the single person in front of you and say like, hey, this may be like a one to two percent benefit to you. Do you want to do it or is it not worth it? And uh, And I tend to you know, always put that front and center, even if like, well, if a thousand people did it, you know, we'd see some benefits because, uh, you know, you want to take care of that one individual and they're the ones who have to bear the, you know, cost or the benefits of the treatment. And Dan, how do you, well, do you, and if so, how do you think differently 
about these sorts of things as a patient and, you know, as a parent versus as a physician? Uh, I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, I, of course, you know, uh, the, the biggest part is a, of a parent is like uh, navigating it with my wife, who is like, oh, you never believe in anything. And then if I tell <laughs> her to be worried, she she's very worried. Um, I mean, I, I think I tend to approach them in a fairly similar way. I mean, probably as a as a clinician, I'm a little bit more focused on, okay, I want to be within the range of the standard of care, even if I know I wouldn't do this. So, you know, if we're talking about mammographic screening, um, which I don't do really, because I'm in a VA population, um, uh, you know, I you know, want to bring up, well, this is the standard recommendation and here's what it means. Whereas like, you know, in, in my real life, say with PSA screening, like I know the numbers, no way, you know, I, I, it's not worth it to me. So uh, I, I think I tend to try to be a little bit more cautious and measured when I see patients because I, you know, I, I want to give them fairly standard advice, even if I, you know, will try to find the ones who are interested in more information because it's it's a little tricky to understand and I think overwhelming to a, a lot of patients to to be asked to make these decisions that are ultimately pretty complicated. Yeah, and Manel, how do you talk with, I don't know if you have children, but how do you talk with family and friends about probability in their health? I um, actually had one case just recently, a friend of mine uh, found that she, you know, this was almost like a body scan, not quite, but um, something like that. And they found some sort of uh, cyst in her liver. And uh, it was a condition that is often treated at childhood and, you know, nothing happens, but, but what happens if you let it go? And she's, she's in her, she's about 50. And um, she had been to five different doctors and four of them said, you have to get major surgery, get rid of your gallbladder, get rid of this, get rid of that, uh, because otherwise this could become cancerous. And uh, the one doctor said that, no, there's no evidence. And the probabilities, there, there's so few cases that you can't even talk in terms of probabilities. So all I could do for her was actually explain uh, the concept of probabilities. I looked up all the papers that she had referred to, the scientific papers, and tried to get down and really, you know, figure out what what if anything could be said in terms of probabilities, and then uh, help her make the choice of whether she wanted to be absolutely certain, you know, get the thing done and be a hundred percent certain that she's not going to get cancer, or if she can live with the probability that it's probably pretty low that something will happen. And she actually uh, decided to go uh, in the first direction to be absolutely certain, and she got the surgery and so on, and is doing well, incidentally. But, um, you know, that becomes a very personal thing. And so certainly as a mathematician, I, I couldn't go any further than that. So I refrained from saying things like, hey, I would never do this. But, <laughs> you know, but so, so yeah, so as a mathematician, uh, I know my limits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great name for the uh, for your memoir, I think. Right. <laughs> well, Manil Suri and Daniel Morgan, thank you so much for joining the First Opinion Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. And thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gafty. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. If you want more from First Opinion, please sign up for our newsletter. We had a link in the show notes. It goes out every Sunday and contains um, a bit of a recommendation from me and everything First Opinion has published in the previous week. 
And if you really love STAT, please join us on STAT Plus Connect, our new members-only forum for job posting, discussion, inside looks at STAT pieces, and much more. And if you have thoughts on First Opinion, please email me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please review or rate us on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts, which really does help with people discovering the show. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.